Section 21 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Francesca. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland. New South Wales, 1860-1890 1. The Land Act Sir John Young became Governor of New South Wales in 1861. He was a man of great talent, but at this stage of the colony's history, the ability of the Governor made very little difference in the general progress of affairs. The political power was now chiefly in the hands of responsible ministers, and without their advice, the governor could do nothing. The ministry of the period, headed by Charles Cowper and John Robertson, prepared a bill to alter the regulations for the sale of land, and to give to the poor man an opportunity of obtaining a small farm on easy terms. Any person who declared his readiness to live on his land and to cultivate it was to be allowed to select a portion, not exceeding a certain size in any part of the colony which he thought most convenient. The land was not to be given gratuitously, but although the selector was to pay for it at the rate of one pound per acre, yet he was not expected to give more than a quarter of the price on taking possession. Three years afterwards he had the option of either paying at once for the remaining three quarters, or, if this were beyond his means, of continuing to hold the land at a yearly rental of one shilling an acre. This was an excellent scheme for the poorer class of farmers, but it was not looked upon with favour by the squatters, whose runs were only rented from the state, and were therefore liable under this new act to be invaded by selectors, who would pick out all the more fertile portions, break up the runs in an awkward manner, and cause many annoyances. Hence, though the Legislative Assembly passed the bill, the Upper House, whose members were mostly squatters, very promptly rejected it, and upon this there arose a struggle, the Ministry being determined to carry the bill, and the Council quite as resolute never to pass it. Acting on the advice of his ministers, Sir John Young entreated the Upper House to give way, but it was deaf to all persuasions and the ministers determined to coerce it by adopting extreme measures. Its members had been nominated by a previous governor for a period of five years as a preliminary trial before the nominations for life. The term of their appointment was now drawing to a close, and Sir John Young, by waiting some little time, might easily have appointed a new council of his own way of thinking. But the ministers were impatient to have their measure passed, and, instead of waiting, they advised the governor to nominate 21 new members of council, who, being all supporters of the bill, would give them a majority in the upper house, so that on the very last night of its existence, it would be obliged to pass the measure and make it law. But when the opponents of the bill saw the trick which was being played upon them, they rose from their seats and resigned in a body. The President himself vacated his chair, and as no business could then be carried on, 
the land bill was delayed until the council came to an end, and the ministers thus found themselves outwitted. They were able, somewhat later, to effect their purpose, but this little episode in responsible government caused considerable stir at the time, and Sir John subsequently received a rebuke from the colonial secretary for his share in it. 2. Prince Alfred In 1868, Lord Belmore became Governor of New South Wales, and during his term of office, all the colonies passed through a period of excitement on the occasion of a visit from the Queen's second son, Prince Alfred. He was the first of the royal family who had ever visited Australia, and the people gave to him a hearty and enthusiastic reception. As he entered, the city's flower-decked arches spanned the streets, crowds of people gathered by day to welcome him, and at night the houses and public buildings were brilliantly illuminated in his honour. But during the height of the festivities at Sydney, a circumstance occurred which cast a gloom over the whole of Australia. The prince had accepted an invitation to a picnic at Clontarf, and was walking quietly on the sands to view the various sports of the holidaymakers, when a young man named O'Farrell rushed forward and discharged a pistol at him. The ball entered his back, and he fell dangerously wounded. For a day or two, his life trembled in the balance, and the colonists awaited the result with the greatest excitement, until it was made known that the crisis was past. No reason was alleged for the crime except a blind dislike to the royal family, and O'Farrell was subsequently tried and executed. 3. Railway Construction New South Wales has three main lines of railway, with many branches. One starts from Sydney and passes through Goulburn to Albury, on its way to Melbourne. One goes north to Newcastle, then through the New England district, and so to Brisbane. And the third runs from Sydney over the Blue Mountains to Bathurst, and away to Bourke on the Darling River. Those rugged heights, which so long opposed the westward progress of the early colonists, have proved no insuperable barrier to the engineer, and the locomotive now slowly puffs up the steep inclines and drags its long line of heavily laden trucks where Macquarie's road, with so much trouble, was carried in 1815. The first difficulty which had to be encountered was at a long valley named Knapsack Gully. Here, the rails had to be laid on a great viaduct, where the trains run above the tops of the tallest trees. The engineers had next to undertake the formidable task of conducting the line up a steep and rocky incline, 700 feet in height. This was effected by cutting a zigzag in the rock. The trains run first to the left, rising upon a slight incline. Then, reversing, they go to the right, still mounting slightly upwards. Then again to the left, and so on, till the summit is reached. By these means, the short distance is rendered long. But the abrupt steepness of the hill is reduced to a gentle incline. The trains afterwards run along the top of the ridge, gradually rising till at the highest point 
they are 3,500 feet above the level of the Sydney station. The passengers look down from the mountain tops on the forest-clad valleys far below. They speed along vast embankments or dash through passages cut in the solid rock, whose sides tower above them to the height of an ordinary steeple. In some places, long tunnels were bored, so that the trains now enter a hill at one side and emerge from the other. One of these tunnels was thought to be unsafe. The immense mass of rock above it seemed likely to crush downwards upon the passage, and the engineers thought that their best course would be to remove the hill from above it. Three and a half tons of gunpowder were placed at intervals in the tunnel, and connected by wires with a galvanic battery placed a long distance off. The operation of firing the mine was made a public occasion, and Lady Belmore agreed to go up to the mountains and perform the ceremony of removing the hill. When all was ready, she touched the knob which brought the two ends of wire together. A dull and rumbling sound was heard. The solid rock heaved slowly upward and then settled back to its place, broken in a thousand pieces and covered with rolling clouds of dust and smoke. All that the workmen had then to do was to carry away the immense pile of stone, and the course was clear for laying the rails. When the line reached the other side of the Blue Mountains, there were great difficulties in the descent, and here the engineers had to lay out zigzags of greater extent than the former. By these, the trains now descend easily and safely from the tops of the mountains down into the Lithgow Valley far below. By the southern railway to Albury, crowds of people are daily whirled in a few hours to places which, 40 years ago, were reached by Sturt and Hume and Mitchell, only after weeks of patient toil through unknown lands that were far removed from civilization. 4. Sydney Exhibition So on every hand the colony made progress. Her railways expanded in scores of branches, her telegraph lines stretched out their arms in every direction, her sheep increased so that now there are nearly 60 millions of them, her wheat and maize extended to more than half a million of acres, her orangeries and vineyards and orchards, her mines of coal and tin, and her varied and extensive manufactures make her people, now numbering a million, one of the most prosperous on the face of the earth. Her pride was pardonable when, in 1879, she held an international exhibition to compare her industries side by side with those of other lands, so as to show how much she had done and to discover how much she had yet to learn. A frail, but wonderfully pretty building, rapidly arose on the brow of the hill between Sydney Cove and Farm Cove, and that place, the scene of so much squalor and misery a hundred years before, became gay with all that decorative art could do, and busy with daily throngs of gratified visitors. The place had a most distinguished appearance, seen from the harbour, 
Its dome and fluttering flags rose up from among the luxuriant foliage of the botanic gardens, as if boldly to proclaim that New South Wales had completed the period of her infancy and was prepared to take her place among the nations as one grown to full and comely proportions. When the building had served its purpose, the people were too fond and too proud of it to dismantle and destroy it. But, unfortunately, it was not long after swept away by an accidental fire. In 1885, the colony was stirred by a great wave of enthusiasm when it was known that its government had sent to England the offer of a regiment of soldiers to fight in the Sudan, side by side with British troops. The offer was accepted, and some seven or eight hundred soldiers, well equipped and full of high hopes, sailed for Africa. The war was too soon over for them to have any chance of displaying what an Australian force may be like upon a battlefield. There were many persons who held that the whole expedition was a mistake, but it had one good effect, for it showed that, for the present at least, the Australian colonies are proud of their mother country, that their eyes are fondly turned to her to follow all her destinies in that great career which she has to accomplish as the leading nation of the earth, and that if she ever needed their help, assistance would flow spontaneously from the fullness of loving hearts. The idea of this expedition and its execution belonged principally to C.B. Daly. But the great leader of New South Wales during the last quarter of a century, and the most zealous worker for its welfare and prosperity, has been the veteran statesman Sir Henry Parks. End of section 21. Recording by Katie Francesca.